0: You know, I think there's kind of two paths. I'm always, and I don't know if this is kind of founder syndrome in general, like, what's next? What's the new shiny, like, opportunity? Or what else should we do? And finally, I had an advisor, and and he was like, yes, of course, like, innovate or die. Always be thinking about those things. But also, like, part of scaling is the less sexy, just you do what you've already done 10 times over. Or like you know 10 times bigger like Mm -hmm. what is working what has the product market fit what is your kind of core competency as a brand and like just do that bigger so a lot of kind of just the basic infrastructure in an efficient and scalable way is step one and then really balancing you know scaling what we know we have what we know works and continuing to be experimental at the same time so I'm trying to be diligent about carving out that time and headspace to get above the day-to-day to to think creatively. Welcome to The Sidcast, the
1: podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to episode 117 of The SIDCast. And with this episode, I'm excited to bring you a new innovation on The SIDCast, the very first episode of my new series, The SIDCast As It Happens. And, you know, what is this idea? You know, especially when you talk to people that are going through changes in their careers or their lives, say entrepreneurs beginning or early stage in building up their startup, or people early in their career who are starting new jobs There's a lot of ups and downs, and I know if I were to talk to those types of people years later and we would talk about some of the early days, it would be interesting, and I try to draw a lot of lessons, but everything kind of gets smoothed over. People are geniuses at retrospective rationality. We can make all kinds of things make sense that have happened in the past, but when you're actually going through an experience in real time, you get a very different insight, and I think what I'm interested in is getting an insight from some of the guests in the As It That is organic. It's fluid. It's adjusting, certainly for the entrepreneurs, including in this first episode in the series with Kaylin Marcotte. It's about pivoting and adjusting. So I think this, as it happens, is kind of interesting. And what I'm doing is I'm going to be talking to the same person, in this case, Kaylin Marcotte. Two different times. In some other episodes, I even talk three different times. And these two different times are separated by five or six months. And as we talk about what their business is all about and what they're trying to accomplish and what they're doing, we kind of stop, we pause, and then we check back in several months later to see how it's going and to see whether all the things that my guest is saying is going to happen or their milestones or their goals, what really happens in reality and how that plays out. So it's an interesting experiment. It's one that I think you're going to like. I've really enjoyed recording these episodes, and it required me to kind of get into this a long time ago, months ago, in fact, beginning of 2021 in many ways, because I knew I needed several months in between to talk to these guests to kind of see how their world has changed. So let's start with the first one, Kaylin Marcotte. Kaylin is the founder and CEO of Jiggy, a direct-to-consumer jigsaw puzzle brand, and it's on a mission, as she says, to modernize and elevate the humble jigsaw, and at the same time support female artists around the world. Prior to launching Jiggy, Kalen founded Village Strategies, which was a marketing consulting group. And she was actually the first employee at the Skim and was running its community marketing social media and something they called the Skim ambassadors. On her website, she has kind of the origin story for Jiggy. And she says, you know, five years ago, I was working around the clock at an early startup. And that, of course, was the Skim. And I fell in love with Jigsaw Puzzles as my nightly meditation. I was doing one every week, and the stress relief was great, but the designs were outdated and uninspired. I started dreaming up a puzzle that would be beautiful for both the doing and the decorating that would look good before, during, and after completion. I knew I wanted to support and highlight the work of amazing female artists, and after a year of curating the art and reimagining and redesigning the packaging, Jiggy was born. I mean, it's a really cool Idea. I love doing puzzles, and certainly during COVID, like many other people, I found that a stress reducer as well, and so I was certainly attracted to Kaylin's story, trying to build a company out of making jigsaw puzzles, but her connection with emerging artists around the world, I think, is clever and inspirational, and helping them turn their art into puzzles, supporting artists, and creating a business in the process. She launched her business in November 2019, and four months later, COVID hit America big. And there's no business plan to deal with what happened. She had to pivot, she had to adjust, and she had to learn. But one thing she had going for her is that people were staying home, like me, and puzzles were one of the ways that people were occupying their time and their minds. I spoke to Kaylin twice, and you'll hear both conversations in this episode. The first conversation was back in February, just after a big snowstorm up here in New England, February of 2021. And in this first segment, we learn about Kaylin, we learn about her startup, When she talks about the learning she's had, how something that she may have thought would be straightforward turns out not to be nearly as straightforward, we get to see firsthand the entrepreneur in action, and we get to see the messiness along the way, which is really what I want to get at in the As It Happens series. Best of all, when we wrapped up this first conversation, we concluded with Kaylin sharing what's next, what she hopes to accomplish when we talk down the line in a few months, What's great about this, and this is true for all the As It Happens podcast episodes, is that we get a glimpse of, in this case, the entrepreneur in real time, as opposed to, as I said earlier, the usual podcast where an entrepreneur tells her story, and it all kind of makes sense in retrospect. My guest is laying it out there, what will happen, talking about what she hopes will happen. And when we check in next, we get to see what actually happened. So let's start with the first segment, and then I'll be back after that for a very quick chat to set up the second and final segment. So here's Kaylin Marcotte. Welcome to the Sidcast. It's Sid Finkelstein. Here we are with Kaylin Marcotte. Hi, Kaylin.
0: Hi. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I'm happy to have you on the show. And so where are you now?
0: I am in California. I'm usually in New York. I've been splitting time this past year with my family during COVID, but I'm usually based in Brooklyn.
1: I'm here in Hanover, New Hampshire. And I had just showed you before we started (laughs) a giant (laughs) storm, a beautiful storm. And I'm looking at no, and that's the way it should look in new england maybe not in new york city but that's the way it
0: should look. <laughs> uh,
1: and you know on snow days which it is a snow day for local schools on snow days kids stay home and they play games and i don't know whether they do jigsaw puzzles <laughs> there six or eight or ten although i suspect they do but that's your thing You created this kind of cool company with jigsaw puzzles. And when I heard about you and a mutual friend let me know about you, I said, wow, that's kind of unusual. There's so many puzzle companies around. There's so many jigsaws. What is she up to? So (laughs) what are you up to, Kayla?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. So my company is called Jiggy. And our models that we partner with emerging artists from around the world and turn their artwork into jigsaw puzzles. And the story for me began about five years ago. I fell in love with puzzles as my kind of form of meditation and relaxation. And I was working 24-7 at a media startup and just on screens all day long. And so I was looking for a way to disconnect and unwind and I started doing puzzles and I found them really stress relieving and relaxing and all the ones I could find out there which there were many but you know they were kind of outdated stock photography and these cottage scenes or landscapes and animals and you spend so much time with this image that I really Wanted to kind of reinvent them and elevate them and support artists at the same time. So that's what we're doing differently.
1: I just did a puzzle. It sounds like what you just described. And it was hard. <laughs> lots yeah. of water, lots of cottage shingles that yep. look the same. I find it very relaxing as well. I love to do it and during mm-hmm. COVID. I've always done puzzles in our family, would be common, say, in Thanksgiving, there'd be a puzzle for whoever was hanging out. Right. And then, got one on the uh,
0: table. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And in summer, you know, at a beach house or something, if we could, we'd have a puzzle out there. But during COVID, I'm kind of like a puzzle maniac. And I just, uh, yeah, I could spend hours and hours on it. Oh my gosh,
0: I know. I lose track of time.
1: Yeah. And actually, do you know much about the research or technology behind puzzles and why it's so, it's been around a long time? I don't know how far back the puzzle yeah. business goes, but there's something about how our brains work. That make puzzles very engaging. I don't know about for everyone, but for a lot of people, do you know anything about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's been interesting to kind of dig into that. There have been a few studies connecting them to, you know, especially developmentally, which there are, you know, children's puzzles of spatial recognition and, you know, recognizing shapes. And I think for adults, what they're connecting them more with is around that wellness and kind of Stress relief, they've been connected to improved sleep, especially, you know, doing them kind of as a bedtime routine, anti-anxiety. There was actually an interesting article where they were used as kind of a tool with trauma and PTSD patients. I have a friend who tragically lost both of her parents in the same year and she actually now runs a grief community and a lot of people in her community, you know, to the point of kind of losing track of time and clearing your mind and getting lost in something in, you know, a healthy distraction way. So it's been interesting to see the different communities kind of picking it up and certainly the big ones are sleep, memory, and even some kind to dementia, Alzheimer's, and just kind of overall brain health.
1: It doesn't surprise me. It's interesting. Now, did you know when you were, I don't know, either as a kid or in college, or think you'd be an entrepreneur, you'd create your own company at some point, that's something you wanted to do?
0: You know, I didn't. I kind of stumbled onto this path. At first, I went to Barnard, I studied political science, and at first I was pre-law and wanted to be a lawyer. I took the LSAT. I started off in management consulting while I was applying to law schools and taking the LSAT. And then I met these two young co founders, two women. They had been news producers at NBC, and they kind of had their aha moment was, you know, their peers, millennial women were not watching what they were producing for NBC News. And, you know, at the time this was 2012. So millennials are cord cutting and, you know, not reading newspapers. And so their idea was to deliver a summary of the news in a daily email newsletter. It was called The Skim. I had graduated college in 2012. They launched that year. I met the two co-founders in 2013 and ended up joining them as their first employee. So that was just a time and place I felt so connected to the Skims mission and had a great relationship with these two young female co-founders. And so really my four years there and being a part of something so early on from there, I got hooked. I think the pace, the ownership, the creativity, it kind of plugged me into this New York, startup and especially female founder world. And so from there, I was like, okay, I think this is my path now.
1: So that's really interesting. This is kind of an impossible question to answer because you only have 50% of the knowledge. But how is being a female founder different than being a male founder?
0: Yeah, I don't know the experience of male founders. I, I've you know heard a lot of them and met and networked with a lot of them, but you know I think there's certainly statistics out there about fundraising and that at this game we did do uh, multiple rounds. So I think twenty seventeen or eighteen was like two percent of venture dollars went to female founders. So I think certainly if you're going the VC route, that there are major differences there. I think, you know, generally just negotiating for yourself, you know, walking into a room or now onto a Zoom and, you know, having to really own your space and, yeah, negotiate for yourself every day. Did
1: did you feel then either watching the founders and since you were employee number one, you were a central player? Did you feel that your team that you were part of had a tougher haul because it was a women-run, women-founded company, either through outright discrimination or just some commentary or, in your experience, it was an even playing field?
0: I think, you know, the skin very much was built around the target audience being a female millennial demographic. So, I think in that sense, you know, the founders will say, you know, potential investors in their own kind of dismissive way, like, oh, so like, I'll ask my wife what she thinks or something, you know, I'll have my daughter sign up and she see what she thinks, instead of taking the business, you know, as it was on a business level. But I actually think in the media world, and certainly a media company centered around a female audience, it was a little bit different. I've actually felt it with Jiggy in the manufacturing space. So factories and our fulfillment center and all of kind of the still pretty old school manufacturing and factories that I'm interfacing with every day and just kind of being taken seriously there. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and are Jiggy puzzles made in the US or overseas?
0: We have two supply chains, one overseas and one here in Michigan.
1: Michigan. And so did you have trouble finding someone to give them money? Did you're their customer? Did you find a (laughs) customer? Right,
0: right. (laughs) Honestly, there have been a lot of kind of learnings there. I thought it was a much more straightforward process in that, you know, you have an idea, you want to get something made, there are these factories, they make it and you pay them and that's that. But especially, you know, still in development, pre-launch, you know, unproven brand, I didn't quite realize that it really is a partnership and you need to get them, you know, bought into you and your potential, especially if you're trying to do small run or come in under their, you know, MOQs, minimum order quantities. So it was definitely a process and a negotiation. And I ended up finding a great partner through introductions and and mutual people who kind of vouched for me and said, no, she has a lot of potential. She could be big business for you.
1: And so how does somebody buy a puzzle? Is it all online or you have distributors?
0: We launched all online on our own website. We started experimenting with some shelf space locally. Our first wholesale was a boutique in Brooklyn. And then actually last year we rolled out nationwide with anthropology. So that was our first large retail partnership for the holidays last year. We did that all the 215 stores and online. So now you can find us in anthropology, in person online, and then our own site online.
1: And how big is your own online relative to the other distribution partners?
0: Year one was about sixty to seventy percent direct to consumer through mm-hmm. us. And then thirty and change was wholesale.
1: How did you get them to carry your they didn't know you, they didn't know the concept and it's not that they're a puzzle store in the first place.
0: They found me and reached out Hard likes really early on. We launched November 2019. I think my first conversation with them was January 2020. So their third month in business. And it was really a new kind of brand creative lead who was really interested in more home and gift and lifestyle And especially for the fourth quarter, you know, the ratio really changes of apparel, accessories to that home and gift and lifestyle section. So, you know, her kind of tabletop table and games was an area she was interested in and still understood that, you know, the anthropology shopper expects, you know, design and curation and they want that. Function and kind of aesthetic and beauty. So, our packaging and the fact that each one was by a female artist just really connected with them and their mission.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Is it a very seasonal business? Q4 around for the holidays, there's more puzzles sold, no doubt, but how much?
0: Well, I was expecting that to be the case. And again, we've only had one calendar year in business and I was expecting more seasonality, but you know, our fourth month was when COVID hit. So we actually saw March, April be a huge spike for us and ended up selling out and having to rush back into production. So, you know, we were still kind of doing everything for the first time. And then these new circumstances layered on top of it. So I'm not sure we have a great kind of gut check yet on what a normal year looks Mm -hmm. like.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And the Women Artists That's 100% of what you sell are works of art that are converted into puzzles.
0: Yeah. So our kind of core product that we release in these collections are artwork by emerging female artists from around the world. We've started a new kind of revenue stream, which is actually custom puzzles. So we've started partnering with other brands, kind of communities, different audiences and we have done custom puzzles and so those, you know, are a collaboration between us. So aren't necessarily by an artist, but yeah, we have released four collections and then we also did a campaign during COVID of hand painted puzzles. So We sold out of our inventory in April. And at the same time, we were hearing from our artists that, you know, galleries are closed, exhibits are canceled. No one was commissioning original art in the first few months of a pandemic. And so they were left in kind of a tough spot and not a lot of options for their work. And so what I was able to get made very quickly were, blank white puzzles. So the pieces were cut, but there was no image printed on them. And so I distributed those to our artists and they hand drew and painted onto these puzzles. And we hosted an auction called Jiggy Originals and uh, essentially hosted an original art auction, you know, as the puzzle, as the vehicle for this art as a fundraiser for the artists and for COVID. So yeah, that was one of our special moments last year. But our normal product, if you will, are these manufactured puzzles with art by female artists.
1: So the original, is that one, is that was part of, you know, what you're doing as, as a promotion, fundraising, etc. But the original puzzle is a work of art. There's only one, everything else mm-hmm. is a copy. And so some of them have potential to be valuable. How does that fit in? I mean, are you an art dealer on the side? <laughs>
0: I know, I need to spin up that side hustle. Yeah, no, you know, I really just wanted to activate our community, give them some work and support them in that time. And so it was amazing to see, I was blown away by what they were able to create on this surface, you know, the pieces are still cut. So it's like a trickier surface than like a canvas, Mm -hmm. but they created incredible pieces. And we did have... A couple, you know, go from let's four hundred to I think thirty eight hundred was the most expensive auction. So yeah, it kind of proved out. I was curious; it was a hypothesis to see if you know the argument of puzzles as a medium and as a a vehicle for art would resonate. And so that kind of was our test.
1: Yeah, I took a uh, art history class. At Dartmouth on Zoom, because I, I wasn't traveling anywhere, so I was able to do it. it was yeah. And it's fantastic. In season two, I uh, had my professor on, Professor Elias. Oh. Uh, it was really fantastic. And I learned so much in that art history. The, actually, the class was called Art and Money, which was really interesting. Yeah. And the ways in which the art market works are really unusual. And it, there's a, a bit of a Wild West here, even though, you know, mm-hmm. there's big there players that try to manage it and control it. But there is the potential, I think, especially if you continue this kind of curation and strategically kind of build up what this could be, that these artists, some of them may be creating works of art that somebody would be willing to pay quite a bit of money for, independent mm-hmm. completely of the puzzles. If that were to happen, you start thinking about well, what am I supposed to do? You can't do I mean that's a totally different industry and market. So maybe you're saying, Well, we'll just right. leave it to the art. We'll leave it to the artist. <laughs> to <Jennifer laughs> a future that.
0: thought. But it is yeah, we, interesting, though. We had one buyer who bought it, and then I, maybe two, three weeks later, I got a follow-up email, and he's like, could I actually hire someone to do this for me? Like, he actually wasn't even interested in doing the puzzle itself. He really just was thinking about it as an art purchase. So there's something there, definitely.
1: There's really something there, because I learned about Banksy and, of course, Andy Warhol, and it's quite surprising to see, well, it was for me anyway, it's quite surprising to see the different manifestations of what art is and how some of them have become unbelievably valuable. Where'd you get this idea in the first place? Why partnering with artists to do these puzzles?
0: Yeah, well, I had started thinking about, you know the idea at its core when it first occurred to me was just create a better puzzle, elevate it, you know, put branding and design and just make it thoughtful and modern and then from there i kind of had a vision for the packaging and started thinking about what the designs would be and you know, was looking at some photography or even things I could create myself or pull from friends and graphic design. It was a combination of things. One, I just started spending a lot of time in these kind of illustrator design graphic communities and saw how much incredible work is out there and how hard it is to monetize this work for these artists. And then I went to an exhibit at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and it was all about women artists and written in big block letters on the wall was, can you name five female artists? And I was with a highly educated group and everyone was like, of course, of course. And, you know, we were like, okay, okay. Uh, Georgia O'Keeffe, Frida Kahlo, um, you know, and it just went silent. It was, and,
1: it was tough. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, I started reading more and it really is still a world that is very gender representation is a big issue in terms of gallery space, museum space. So, you know, I went to an all women's college. I had a lot of friends who, who pursued a path as visual artists and just felt strongly that this was something I could do.
1: Right. Is there anything that would keep someone else from doing exactly what you're doing?
0: And now that we are building a community and traction and these relationships, so essentially, you know, our kind of company IP right now, beyond just the patents and design patents for our packaging is really this database of artists who we have this exclusive licensing relationship with. And down the line, it's certainly something I think about of, you know, right now it's puzzles. What are future applications for this community we're building of artists to license work with? So, you know, especially in 2020 with the pandemic, puzzles were hot and a lot of people popped up, but we've really gotten traction in building this loyal community so far.
1: There's an artist community that could do other things besides puzzles. I get that. But there's also when you start with puzzles thinking, well, who else could do the puzzle? And you can think about celebrities doing puzzles. There would be a gigantic number Mm -hmm. of people that would want to do a LeBron James-created puzzle, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't know know whether he could or would, and maybe the original would go to charity, and a portion of the sales might go to some cause, and that might attract some celebrities to do this. It seems like it's a wide-open area that, I think, as your business grows and people become or hear about you more you will have copycats. Maybe you already do. I don't know. And yeah. what I've learned about all this is that you can't avoid people copying you. If you, mm-hmm. have to, you have to sue them to keep them away. It's a bad way to live. You don't have enough money to keep doing that yeah. anyway. So you have mm-hmm. to just be smarter and more creative and keep coming up with a new idea and a better way of doing it. And as you're describing, building the brand. Those are the ways that I think you protect yourself. So how big are you? Can you tell me how what your revenues are at this stage?
0: So we have released one milestone. So which was a million in revenue, which we crossed wow. in our first year. Yeah. You so hit a million a,
1: dollars in revenue in your first year. That's really yeah. amazing, actually.
0: Yeah. Thank you. It was a big year. And now just keeping it up, keeping the momentum.
1: What's the retail price yeah. of a puzzle, typical puzzle?
0: We retail between 40 and $50. Dollars.
1: These are for... 1,000 pieces, for example, or 500 pieces? So our
0: two sizes are 450 and 800. They complete at 14 by 18 and 18 by 24. So because each puzzle is this piece of art, and we also include a tube of puzzle glue, so if you want to keep it and actually preserve it as art, they complete to match standard frame sizes. So we have those two sizes that complete at 14 by 18 and 18 by 24, and... Yeah. Retail 40 to
1: 50. So that's, I don't know, 50 to hundred percent more than kind of your standard puzzles, or maybe not hundred percent more, but 50% more. So you're selling a premium product in this particular, mm-hmm. it's not a lot of money, but in that space, mm-hmm. it's not hard to find plenty of puzzles that are cheaper. So you're selling something quite different, which is good, which probably has helped with profitability, of course. And have you hit mm-hmm. profitability in the first year or you're still working at it?
0: We have. Yes.
1: Very unusual startup. I don't know whether you're following <laughs> the rules, the rules of modern yeah. business. you're <laughs> supposed to lose a lot of money you're and so then so you have that. an IPO know, right? then you do an IPO <laughs> So okay, it's February and we're going to talk again in a few months. and what should we be looking for? What are you trying to do next that we can kind of come back and say, okay, here's how it went. Here's what I learned along the way.
0: Yeah. So two things I'm really excited about for the next few months are one, our membership model. So we launched a monthly puzzle club. It is our kind of first take at a subscription and really building community. We've building been building our relationship with our customers, but really starting to build community around them and each other and our artists. So You sign up, you receive a 500-piece puzzle every month. It's curated, exclusive for this community. And we have meet and greets with the artist. We'll be connecting the members to each other. Hopefully, when events are a thing, we can puzzle parties. So I'm really interested to start to test some of this new content, community building, and a new kind of model of, of a monthly membership. And then the second is continuing to build out this idea of the custom and kind of what we touch on as, you know, puzzles as this platform for engagement. We have, you know, had a couple interesting conversations of essentially launching a puzzle alongside a album release or a new show or some kind of big moment of a campaign with a celebrity or entertainment and having it kind of sit in the promotional, you know, fan merch kind of use case. So, I'm interested to see that. You know, I think of advertisers spending so much money to gain, you know, seconds of of attention and if they could they have a customer spending eight hours putting together, you know, a branded design. Amazing. You're right. For
1: eight hours, you're staring at this sign that somebody wants to get into your head. And the amount of money would cost you to do that is so infinitesimal compared to the typical. Certainly uh, anything on TV, probably going to be cheaper than some of the social media. <laughs> Very interesting. Right. So, you're, so exactly. you're starting to do that. So we'll be able to see how that goes and where other new ideas might come up along the way. This is a good round one with you, Kalen. Did we leave anything off that you want to say just for, you know, as people think about your business to start and that we'll pick up on later when we get back together?
0: You know, uh, feedback, ideas, I'm all ears. I'm also just starting to build out my team. So I've been a one woman show from here on out. Hopefully when we check in next, I'll, you know, the whole side of the, the CEO journey and first time founder of starting to be thoughtful about a team and building culture and stepping into my own as a leader in that way. That'll be all new. So I'm excited about that chapter as well.
1: Yeah, that's gigantic. Good for you. That'll be fun to watch. And that's also kind of what I do and teach and consult on. So I could have a case study right in front of me.
0: <laughs> Amazing.
1: <laughs> okay, Kain, thanks so much. We'll talk to you in a few months.
0: Sounds great. Thanks, Sydney. That was
1: really interesting. I hope you enjoyed that chat. When I spoke to Kaylin and listened to her story, I was really rooting for her. I mean, first of all, I love entrepreneurs, business creators, risk takers. But second, she's doing all of this during covid And not only that, but third, I really like the idea of partnering with artists, many of whom probably won't mind the added revenue, could really need that added revenue, and to create a product that so many people use. So let me summarize what she said at the end of the first segment before we get to the second segment. She talked about membership models, a monthly club, a subscription business, right? And she wanted to build community among customers, among artists, and even create some events. She talked about launching a puzzle alongside a new show or an album release or some celebrity tie-in as part of the promotional fan merch. And it was interesting to hear about ad spending, you know, spending eight hours putting together a branded puzzle, much cheaper and more efficient than many other forms of ad spending when there's a new show or an album. She talked about building out her team, and so far she was only a one-woman show. And of course, this is always a challenge for any entrepreneur. As you start to scale, you've got to bring in really talented people. And there's a big risk with each person because it's not going from, you know, 200 to 201 or 202, let alone thousands and adding one. It's going from one to two and two to three. And that's top of mind. And also, you know, I wonder how to get ready to shift from the COVID era to lifestyles that are starting to resemble the way we've always lived. And how's that going to happen? So we talk about all of this, but in this second segment, Kaylin also reveals a pretty interesting secret, one that changes the trajectory of the entire business. Our second conversation took place on June 25th of this year, almost four months after our first conversation. Let's see how things are going for Kaylin. Welcome back to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and Kaylin Marcotte is back again a few months later. How are you, Kaylin?
0: Hi, I'm great. Enjoying summer. How are you?
1: I'm actually very good, thank you. And we are now at the end of June, just to tune into our timing. And when we last talked, you had a bunch of things you were planning to do around subscription business, or at least getting that started, kind of membership models you were talking about. You had some ideas on maybe creating some new marketing and promotion activities around album release, celebrity tie-ins. And then you also talked about, well, you're a one-woman show and you know you need to build out a team. And that's always one of the biggest challenges and most important things for any entrepreneur. And it would be interesting to hear about that. So let's maybe do a bit of a catch up on those things. Start with uh, maybe the subscription business and what's going on there.
0: Great. Sounds good. So yeah, since we last spoke, we launched our Jiggy Puzzle Club. So really the thinking behind this was one, puzzles are addicting. We, you know, we saw strong repeat behavior. We heard all the time, you know, finish one puzzle, you want to dive into the next. And we had been releasing our designs in this collection model. So Kind of a seasonal curated collection that we would release of six designs, and there was just an appetite for more. And so the membership is a monthly puzzle club. It's a 500 piece puzzle delivered every month. Each one is, you know, sticking with our core value and model of partnering with an emerging female artist for each design. So we curate the art. Each month is a piece by a new artist. And then we have some fun kind of community building, puzzle parties, separate kind of content. The artists will give a studio tour and introduce themselves and speak about their art with the members some kind of just perks, access to our products early, free shipping, things like that. So yeah, we're a few months into that. It's been great to see really building that kind of habitual behavior with this audience. And it ties back very organically to the founding story, which is that when I was you know working at the skim and super stressed out and startup life and just needed to step away from screens and unwind, puzzles were my form of meditation. And so being able to have this monthly kind of ritual with these members is really kind of hearkening back to that and building that relationship with them. So that's chugging along.
1: Yeah. So as you're talking, I'm thinking because I'm a big puzzle fan as well. When I'm starting a puzzle, it is very addictive calming and addictive. It's kind of weird, right? Addictive means (laughs) I think your stress levels are going, but it is meditative. It is relaxing. And during COVID, it was a major practice of mine, as you just described for yourself as well. But once I'm done with a puzzle, I'm not always ready to jump into the next one because I know (laughs) that I'm just going to go totally into it and want to be able to (laughs) breathe a little bit. So that's kind of interesting. But how is it taking off? Do you have any numbers you can share yet about the subscription model?
0: Yeah, that is true. I certainly myself have to be careful with, you know, usually the rest of my to-do list goes out the window when I get sucked in. But yeah, we are just a couple months in and we're seeing, you know, of course, what upon launch saw the biggest kind of boost in new members joining and then we've seen study month over month growth. And we're also seeing a lot of people gifting it. So I would say maybe a quarter, a third at this point are gifted membership. So you know, you prepay three, six annually and give someone this subscription. So that's been fun to see as well. And then it really just also enables us to work with more artists, you know, in this collection model, we're super kind of curated, we have a, a very clear aesthetic for our kind of core collection so this also we've been able to do kind of thematic pieces so this month for june we worked with an lgbtq artist honoring pride month you know for march we had an amazing piece by this palestinian american artist around 100 iconic women for women's history month so each month we kind of touch on a theme or at least are able to work with many more artists than we ever were before Yeah. Uh,
1: A side note, is 500 the most common number, uh, most popular number of pieces for a puzzle?
0: 500 and a thousand. And thinking about it on a monthly basis and wanting to be able to get through them, we went with 500. We surveyed our audience and they thought that was a bit more accessible for a monthly. (laughs) 500 is
1: a lot faster. It's not 50% faster. It's a lot faster because it's an exponential thing. So I guess I could see that. Okay. And then on the uh, kind of the tie-ins and celebrity tie-ins, I guess that much time that's gone by on that. But yeah, not
0: a ton of time. We did execute on one partnership and So really the idea here is we're building out this concept of puzzles as a platform for a brand moment, for kind of fan engagement, for, you know, press or media or a product launch. So, you know, back in... February, for example, for Valentine's Day, we worked with books, this flower company and created a custom puzzle kind of floral design in their branding and paired that with a bouquet. And it was like a Valentine's Day date night in bundle. And so working with brands on kind of those either upsells or product launches for mm-hmm. the Kentucky Derby, we created a custom puzzle for Woodford Reserve, who was launching a new label art on their mm-hmm. bottle for the Kentucky Derby. So we turned that art into a puzzle and it came with The bottle for press. So we've done those kind of brand collaborations. And then on the celebrity side, we're really exploring opportunities to work with entertainers, athletes to have another kind of way to engage with fans where it's, I'm getting ahead of it a little bit, but the concept I'm really excited about, um, talking to, you know, some WNBA and female athletes and, you know, maybe you'll do a puzzle and there's a QR code that will lead you to like highlight reels or, you know, uh, Mm. original footage or an interview. So kind of having these like Easter egg kind of surprise and delight multimedia. And then lastly, working with yeah organizations, philanthropies, and using the puzzles as a fundraising effort. So April April's Parkinson's Awareness Month, my grandmother had Parkinson's, I have a dear friend whose father was diagnosed recently. And so we worked with the Michael J. Fox foundation mm-hmm. and created a puzzle. There's a female artist living with Parkinson's and paints. There was a documentary about her and how painting helps with some of her symptoms like her tremors. And so we used one of her paintings, turned it into a puzzle, and that was a fundraiser during April. For the Michael J. Fox Foundation. So that's great.
1: A that, that's, yeah, that's great. It's really kind of thinking about all kinds of connections with partners that have big platforms themselves, and there's a mission and a meaning to many of the examples you just shared. You also made me think about you know these NFTs, you know non fungible tokens that mm-hmm. you mentioned the NBA, and they're kind of weird things. Except that they could be worth millions upon millions of dollars, and I don't know yes. whether that's maybe that's off strategy a little bit, but it's more out there. So for example. LeBron had a famous dunk, and that was a video, and that video sold for millions of dollars. You could get that video, you and I, right now on Google for nothing, but there's right. only one that has been labeled has. As the official one, and it turns out there's a market for it. So some yeah. celebrity doing a puzzle, for example, first of all, you wouldn't find that on Google very easily, but that could be, some, I mean, it'd be kind of interesting to think about, because the NFT business is part of the art market, and you're in the art yes. world, really, when you get down to it. Anyways, just a uh, yeah. off-the-wall thought. There's something there. there. <laughs> I know. There might be something there. Yeah, I don't think we've seen the end of the NFT craze. I think it's going to be accelerating rather than decelerating. Okay, let's talk about team. Is it just you or have you managed to bring somebody in yet?
0: <laughs> yeah, so over the past couple months, I have brought on two more team members. And it's been great. You know, the other day we started doing kind of our version of like a lunch and learn. But we call it breakfast and brainstorm and, you know, bring in... Now the three of us, three employees and myself, so four people, which feels, you know, like a real team and it's very exciting, and brainstorm a certain campaign or area of the business that we're diving into. And actually just yesterday I put up the job description and am really looking for a partner. I think I run on amazing day-to-day like executors who are in the weeds with me and absolutely, you know, take things off my plate and increase the bandwidth and what we can accomplish. But but it still is all kind of laddering up to me, and I think I realize the biggest difference of really having somebody who's a real owner and can kind of be my right hand. So, essentially, a, a head of ops and finance, you know, potentially growing into a COO role. That's the biggest next hire that I think is what I've identified as the path towards, you know, getting some of my time back Mm -hmm. and really what the business needs. I'm still doing many things that I'm doing by necessity. And I think someone could be doing better (laughs) and free up me to kind of Mm -hmm. go into my Mm -hmm. superpower lanes. Right. That's such
1: an essential thing for any entrepreneur to be able to do. And then you know how important that hire is going to be. So it takes a lot of effort to make sure, especially because it's so small that this is someone that she or he, right. there's a, not just a competence, a deep competence level, but a compatibility level with you. Right.
0: I mean, yeah, talk like culture and everything. Like at this yeah, point, it's, with three people, you know, each one.
1: Well, the incremental impact of any one person is much greater when you're employee number two, three, four, five. You know, Peter Drucker, the legendary kind of management theorist, He's gone a number of years, but he's probably still the most famous person out there for his writings. He said business, there's only two things you need in business. You need to make something and then you need to sell it. And while, of course, there's some other things, the simplicity of that is actually very um, powerful. You have to make it, whether it's a product or a service, and then you got someone who needs to sell it. That's it. Everything else is called costs. This is what he said. Everything else is overhead. And so it's never a bad idea to keep in mind kind of that first principle. So there's another kind of really big thing that happened that we didn't talk about yet because we couldn't. Yes. So now we can have the big reveal. You were on Shark Tank. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) I
1: know. and, And you got a deal, no less. So let's walk us through that. First of all, how did you get onto Shark Tank? There are a lot of entrepreneurs out there with great stories. And not everybody's getting on. So how did that
0: happen? Yeah, so there are a couple paths from my understanding. So I actually had a producer reach out, and turns out I think about a third of the companies that go on have been kind of recruited, if you will. And I think their producers are constantly, you know, looking at Instagram even and kind of pop startup lists and stuff. So I was contacted by the producers last year and just went through you don't skip ahead that much. You still have to do the audition video, if you will, and and the draft of your pitch. And so went through that whole process and kept moving forward. And then you get paired with a production team and you know they kind of really walk you through the entire process and help you think about how your display and how you want the product shown and you know are you going to bring anyone or do any kind of like gimmicky you know mm-hmm. performance things or just your pitch and how does that come mm-hmm. together so mm-hmm. I felt very kind of taken care of through the whole preparation process and then it was a little bit of a different year because of the pandemic. And so filming was in a different location and we had to quarantine. And, you know, we couldn't bring, I'm a solo founder. Um, usually you maybe could bring people to demo the product or be involved in your pitch. And we had to just kind of pair that back and I went out there alone. But yeah, it was a wild experience. At the same time, of course, you know, a huge opportunity and nerve wracking, but also just such a kind of honor to be able to share the story and share it with the Sharks and share it with the audience. And um, so, yeah, ultimately felt like it was really our chance to get the brand out there.
1: It's a huge opportunity. I'm curious, do the Sharks know anything about the business or about you before you show up?
0: They say they have your first name and company name and that's it. That's and it. they have they their notepads and everything else. Everything they hear, in,
1: they hear for the first time.
0: They hear for the first from time from uh-huh. you in the tank. You are in there for, I think the average is about an hour. And so, you know, it's edited down, I think clips are seven, eight minutes, but you do have a chance to really have a dialogue and get Mm -hmm. into some of the detail being in there for an hour. But yeah, apparently they hear nothing beforehand.
1: So that's also interesting that it's an hour that you're there and we watch on TV seven or eight minutes, you know, and they want to create drama, of course, but they still need (laughs) enough information so that viewers kind of get a sense of what's going on. So what were big parts that were cut? which is, you know, most of it, right? (laughs) When you get right down to it. Right. What was going on? Was it just kind of nitty gritty discussion of, you know, the finances, the market, uh, you as a person, what were the parts that were cut out of there?
0: Yeah, it was definitely just kind of my background, you know, what I had done before, how I ended up there. There was a lot about, we had done this whole campaign during COVID with the artist called Originals, where you know, we sold out quickly. Of course, this year, especially they asked, I think everyone who went in, like, how did COVID affect your business and what has last year been like? And so when that happened, you know, we sold out very quickly and we couldn't restock. So we ended up doing this series of hand painted puzzles with the artist. It was just a blank white puzzle that the artist hand drew and painted on. And we hosted an auction around that. So, you know, I'd come in with videos of some of the artists painting on these blank white puzzles. And we talked a lot about that and the COVID impact and so they ended up including some of that more on the like sharks their biggest concern being that this was you know just a COVID bump but a lot of our subsequent conversation wasn't included and then yeah my personal background it was really interesting to see I felt that they kind of camouflaged the cameras pretty well so Mm. it ended up feeling very conversational and able to kind of forget at moments that everything, you know, it was one live take and really just have a conversation. Of course, you know, they're talking over each other, they're, each of them wants to get their kind of, you know, sound bites and questions and steer the conversation. And a lot of that, you know, unless it's a real kind of buzzy moment between the sharks, a lot of that was cut out. Right. But yeah, I think they did a good job. I talked to a lot of founders before I went on and, you know. It was the idea of just releasing control and not having any control and not even knowing until it's live on TV what Mm -hmm. the edit is going to be. You know, you don't see anything beforehand, you know, is definitely nerve wracking. But Mm -hmm. one of those things that if you decide to do it and take that opportunity, kind of then just have to release yourself (laughs) to it.
1: (laughs) That's great. And so when you watch in the short segment, you seek some commentary from each of the sharks. But did any one of them really kind of stand out with either critical questions or really good questions? Or did you get a sense that Mark was going to maybe be the one that would want to partner with you? Did, I mean, you're hoping as you're going along, I mean, if it was me, I would have to kind of keep under control the sense that, okay, I've got this one, this one's the, because you've got to communicate and you've got to make your case. What did you pick up in kind right. of real time during that process?
0: Yeah, you know, you're trying to balance so much because yes, on the one hand, if you're signing up to be partners, you want to, you know, make sure that, they at least see, if not share, your vision. And so trying to track how each of them is kind of reacting to you and the vision for the company and sharing enough information, getting enough information. So going in, I had watched a lot of the show, obviously, to prepare. And I really appreciated Mark's approach, even if he didn't end up making an offer, usually was supportive and had insightful comments or advice or feedback. And that he really it seemed to me enjoyed being a mentor, an investor, of course, but really a mentor for these entrepreneurs. So that was attractive to me. And then, you know, of course, I think it was also more obvious in the room than perhaps it comes across that you know, they also kind of have their roles to play. You know, like Mr. Wonderful is going to come out with some royalty or <laughs> loan or something, right? Right. Um, right. And <laughs> not that it's tongue in cheek, but like, you know, they each kind of have their characters, if you will, on the show as well. And you know, paying attention to what they've previously invested in or what they've done. So he loves subscription, for example. Kevin O'Leary, I'm talking about. And he loves subscription. He has this big wine investment and a lot of wine subscription boxes. So once we started talking about that, you know, I saw his eyes light up. He's mm. like, could this be a collaboration opportunity? And so mm. I think they're always looking for, you know, taking you on your merits, to, you know, standalone, but then also where it fits into their portfolio. And so as much as you can understand what else they have or do and try to cater to the room but in some ways pitch individually as well
1: yeah i'm curious also about the valuation so you walked in and you asked for an investment that would value your company at 10 million and you Mm -hmm. end up making a deal with mark cuban where the valuation was i think 3.3 million Mm -hmm. If I have that right, which is obviously one third. And they were struck by that. I think on TV, two of them seemed to drop out right away. Probably that didn't happen quite so quick in the one hour. And it sounded like the 10 million was they couldn't get their head around that. So why did you go in with that number? Because it was perceived as high and you ended up getting a deal for a lot less than that.
0: Yeah, you know, I thought a lot about that and talked to a lot of people and watched a lot. You're trying to accomplish a lot of things in or at least I was, you know, with this platform, with this opportunity, I'm trying to, you know, potentially secure an investment. I'm trying to share just the story and the mm-hmm. brand mission. I'm trying to share, you know, my story as an entrepreneur and, you know, kind of build your personal brand and so treating it as a vc pitch and a reality tv show and right. you know there's a lot to balance and so for me i knew the valuation was going to come down i'd seen the show you know the show tries to cater to a lot of different types of companies and they're real you know amazing just true mom and pop like stumbled into this yeah. you know the local cookie company, you know, and like just stumbled into it, didn't know, you know, didn't have like a growth trajectory mapped out. And now, especially in the last couple of seasons, it feels they're real, you know, kind of hyper growth or growth stage. Either they've already raised capital or they're going to you know, do a round out of this. And so there are many different types. And I think stages of company that are now going on and the show at its inception was really, I think the average deal was like 300 grand for 30% or something, you know, it was like a huge small. amount of equity and fairly low valuations. And so I kind of went in, where I would come in if I were going into, you know, I was at a VC backed startup before I had a million friends and contacts in the VC world, kind of gut checks on valuation with where our metrics were, you know, one year in bootstrap, no debt, no other equity partners. We are profitable from our fifth week in business and felt that was actually the number. And then Mm -hmm. there was all this Okay, but do you come in lower or higher to leave room? And, you know, I decided I just I came in where I thought if I were gonna, you know, go to maybe more institutional money, that's where I think it would be. And then understanding the value of the show, the value of, you know, potentially the shark and what is institutional money or or somewhere else versus, you know, hopefully smart money with real other value, what would I come down to there? So you're working on the fly and, you know, you're in there an hour, you have a good conversation for an hour, but there's no diligence that's been done Or you know, like basically you connect afterwards and then the formal process begins.
1: Right. So the deal that's set is a tentative deal subject to due diligence working out in the way that you've represented the company, I assume. They can't change their mind. If everything you said, you have evidence and they see it. I mean, is that true? Can they change their mind if they wanted to?
0: I think they can. And also keep in mind, like the deal... Part of it is just the straight numbers, which you've, you know, kind of agreed on in the tank, but then the other part of any deal is the terms themselves and, you know, what are the actual kind of operational agreement and, you know, board seats or whatever and blah, blah, blah. So that, you know, there's no discussion of really in the tank. So there's a lot that has to happen afterwards. And I've heard varying percentages of how many go through or not.
1: After the show aired, there's usually a nice bump because this is free and really big advertising, right? So I'm sure that mm-hmm. happened to you. How big was that
0: bump? Yeah, I think we had like 30x sales that weekend. I mean, it was fun. I was watching in real <laughs> 30X time. 000%. Yeah,
1: thousand. I
0: was watching. You know, it was the spring. There is some seasonality in puzzles. It wasn't necessarily, you know, peak. Puzzle time. So it really gave a huge bump when we probably wouldn't have had a moment like that. And so, you know, we saw it as both, yes, hope people convert, hope it's a great actual sales moment, but also just kind of a major, you know, lead gen opportunity capture emails, make sure our pixels set up. And we did hear just anecdotally a lot of like, oh, this will be great for holidays or, you know, this will be great for Mm -hmm. that birthday gift I need in a couple months. So Mm -hmm. really making sure that you're also seeing it as capturing this audience for kind of future retargeting and email and marketing.
1: Right. And you have a bit of time from when the show, uh, when you record it to when it comes out and you know, you have a deal. Is it the case that you know for sure you're going to be on that there's a deal or there's some uncertainty about that? You don't know when, but do you know that it's going to definitely happen?
0: No, no. they say nothing is guaranteed to air. I think about a quarter maybe that film don't air and you get a couple weeks' notice. So they tell yeah. you a couple weeks before your air date that it's actually I was thinking, been. I
1: mean, the reason I was asking is because if you're going to get a big bump and you just described 30x, you got to be ready to fulfill that. Otherwise you've kind of created more harm than anything else. And that costs something at a minimum costs a lot of hours of time, but it certainly costs other. So you need to be ready for it.
0: Right. Yeah. There is like an understanding amongst the Shark Tank audience. I think that this is a huge platform. And so I heard one founder who, you know, they did a follow-up kind of, where are they now? Kind of teaser in a later episode. And I think he had aired like four months prior and, you know, his message was, you know, the show was amazing and it did this. And like to all of you, if you're still waiting for your order, thank you so much for your patience, like, you know, four months later. And so I think people are kind of understanding that if you're a small business and it's really overnight, that there is some kind of patience there. But certainly if you, you know, need to stock up and with us in our production timeline, we can't manufacture in two weeks. So we couldn't even between the actual securing of an air date to when it was, you know, stock up. So prepping the site. Luckily, we had pretty good inventory, but then you just make sure, you know, pre-order, waitlist, gift cards, like everything mm-hmm. else is ready to right. go.
1: Wow. That's exciting. And once the deal is done, what's your relationship with Mark Cuban? Do you spend any time with him? I'm sure he has a big team that gets involved in the details. Uh,
0: yeah, how's that his work? team gets involved. And I think what I saw from just watching the show, I feel it is true that he really enjoys being a part of the journey and being kind of your founder, like, sounding board to some extent, trying to help flatten the learning curve to the extent mm-hmm. that he can. And so he has a team for his portfolio that does a lot of kind of just the functions that we might need, but he is accessible, which has been great.
1: So what happens now? You've got you know much higher profile. You have a successful business to start. You're starting to grow your team out, as you described. You have some money, additional money that you didn't have before even though you were profitable, which meant that you had pretty decent cash flow. It never hurts to have a little bit more. But you have the Mark Cuban brand associated with you. Now you're not kind of an unknown startup anymore.
0: Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> it's I a little like scary. It's to... like, scary. Right? You're like, oh, wait.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is this not is just, real well, let's thing. See,
1: let's just see if this works. It's, uh, you know, I'm right. good. And I think it'll work. No, it's working. And now you got to do something. Yeah. How do you feel personally about, about, of course, you're happy about it, but you must be a little bit concerned or afraid or, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to keep that just willingness to try and experiment. I feel like I have seen some firsthand through my consulting and companies I've worked in the past of just... Almost it being kind of paralyzing to then feel like all this attention and everyone's watching. And so trying to just stay creative and nimble and willing to fail and experiment, but certainly continuing to build out the team. There have been some cycles of getting more or less joy out of (laughs) the day-to-day and the company. And so I think really getting the right people in place will be able to bring that back and get back to the pieces of the business that I really do love and do best. And that's where I should be. And then, you know, I think there's kind of two paths. I'm always, and I don't know if this is kind of founder syndrome in general, like what's next? What's the new shiny, like opportunity or... What else should we do? And finally, I had an advisor, and and he was like, Yes, of course, like innovate or die. Always be thinking about those things. But also, like, part of scaling is the less sexy, just you do what you've already done 10 times over, or like. You know 10 times bigger like Mm -hmm. what is working what has the product market fit what is your kind of core competency as a brand and like just do that bigger so trying to really balance that and i think you know we were only four and a half months in business when covid struck and so i was trying to keep head above water so a lot of kind of just the basic infrastructure in an efficient and scalable way is step one. And then really balancing, you know, scaling what we know we have, what we know works and continuing to be experimental at the same time. So I'm trying to be diligent about carving out that time and headspace to get above the day-to-day to think creatively. But I think the rest of this year, some of the things we already touched on, you know, really building this membership community with the monthly subscription model and this Puzzles as a platform we're seeing a lot of demand for with the brands, with other kind of fundraising or, you know, entertainment, fan engagement. And then I think going into the holidays, we've already started hearing some demand for like corporate gifting, kind of employee engagement. So a little more almost B2B side. And then we are doing some more retail. So we had launched with anthropology last year and I didn't want to go too big, too mass, too soon, but are doing a couple other kind of high-end home and gift retail.
1: So there's a lot going on from B2C to selling through retail, to potential B2B, through a subscription model. And one of the challenges is doing all of those at the same pace. Very few companies can do that, let alone small companies. And so prioritizing becomes a big deal. You know, when you're talking about scaling, it really is about execution, the good old fashioned kind of boring execution. It's not the shiny Mm -hmm. thing. It's not. Yeah. And having people on the team that love that, that breathe that becomes really critical. So last question for you, what have you learned about yourself through this process yeah when we first talked you were talking about the skim and you were one of the first very first employees and that was kind of a cool Mm -hmm. startup and you have friends and contacts in that in the community but this is you starting just yourself and now coming into something with pretty nice growth trajectory what have you learned about yourself
0: Mm, yeah a lot. I think I'm glad that I took the path I did, especially the first, you know, year and a half, having really bootstrapped, gone at it, done every aspect of the business at least once, and seen it all, and learned that that is kind of my mo of what can I do with the least amount of resources? How can I hack this and come together and do it in a scrappy way, which, you know, gave a lot of confidence that like, I will figure it out again, that COVID, you know, original fundraiser that we did with the hand painted puzzles. And I think in some ways that, you know, what's that say? Necessity is the mother of invention, Mm -hmm. you know, that this forcing function of not having a ton of resources was a great way to just be creative and super nimble I'm already as I mentioned briefly like what's the next big thing what are we doing next and realizing that that zero to one that kind of from scratch like Mm -hmm. meaty you know development phase is where I just light up and has been versus now where I feel like some of the 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 kind of business needs are of, of that scale and really just How do we execute to perfection and scale what we already have? And I'm already like, you know, chopping at the bit for the next zero to one project. So that's something I learned. And I mean, everything when it comes to management, I had not been, not only had I not really been a boss before, but... I went from a year of consulting to then the skim, and then I did my own brand consulting. And so I haven't even really had that many bosses. And so, you know, now culture and how do you set people up for success and communicate clearly. And so I think that's the biggest kind of just personal development has been in now thinking about a team and management. And I feel like it makes you take a very close look at yourself and kind of push back on potentially your natural way of operating to really make sure that it's in the best interest of the team.
1: Yeah, Kaylin, that's great. Thank you for sharing your story. I'll just say from what you just described is always learning. A classic learning mindset. Carol Dweck, a very famous professor at Stanford, has written extensively about that. And self-awareness, knowing your strengths and your weaknesses and who you are, and looking for opportunities to grow. Those are the things you're touching on that I think are at least in my experience, seeing many entrepreneurs, but also many CEOs of big companies, those are differentiators, like big, not little, big differentiators, because they're hard. Self-awareness is a hard thing to do, because it means admitting and acknowledging you're not so good at everything. And when you're a successful young entrepreneur, you feel pretty good, and you should feel pretty good, but then balancing it, it becomes important. Well, this has been really interesting to see your journey. These two rounds Best of luck, Kayla. Maybe I'll be one of your subscription customers soon. Although I'm going to wait for a little cooler weather because summer I don't really sit doing too many yeah. But that's the seasonality thing. But it would make for a good present as well for lots of people I could think of. Kayla Marcotte, good luck. Thank you so much. It's great Thanks so you. Thanks so much, Seth. Thank you for listening to The Sidcast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website www.thesidcast.com or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. This sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.